Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Doctor's Kitchen. Recipes, health, lifestyle. If you went to see a fully qualified herbalist uh, like Anita, you would be prescribed a very personal tincture um, which she has blended herself using organically grown freeze-dried herbs uh, that are, her, her shop's like a, an emporium, it's stacked everywhere, the most amazing smell. And there are these really potent herbs lining the walls. It's like stepping back into Charles Dickens. Oh, uh, wow. So, but that's the, that's the other end of the spectrum. And you would need uh, a very experienced professional to prescribe those for you. Welcome to the Doctor's Kitchen podcast. The show about food, lifestyle, medicine, and how to improve your health today. I'm Dr. Rupi, your host. I'm a medical doctor. I study nutrition, and I'm a firm believer in the power of food and lifestyle as medicine. Join me and my expert guests where we discuss the multiple determinants of what allows you to lead your best life. We've spoken about the menopause a couple of times in this podcast, but natural menopause remedies are things that I'm definitely asked about a lot, but I don't know too much about. And actually the whole concept and the whole area of natural remedies using herbal tinctures to sane supplements, as you'll hear about on today's podcast, is something that I'm learning a lot about, particularly the research as well as anecdotal evidence of its efficacy. And today I'm chatting with Dr. Anne Henderson, a highly experienced consultant obstetrician and gynecologist who has spent 17 years as a senior consultant at a major NHS trust following undergraduate studies at Cambridge University about this. Dr. Anne is passionate about women's health issues, particularly menopause and HRT, which is now a key health agenda. And she has extensive experience in this area, having undertaken postgraduate research into the menopause, HRT, PMS, and postnatal depression. She is also a British Menopause Society accredited specialist. Now that's a recognition currently held by fewer than 200 practitioners in the UK. And Anne also firmly believes in offering her patients the full spectrum of treatments, which includes 
complementary therapies such as herbal medicine. And in fact, she's worked closely with a medical herbalist in Kent for the last 20 years. And this collaboration has been highly successful and forms an integral part of Anne's clinical practice, as well as educational seminars. And she believes that the role of complementary therapies, particularly herbal medicine, is greatly underrecognized by most healthcare practitioners. And I agree because I'm probably one of them. And that's why we're going to be talking about it today. Our conversation will dive into the need to expand and improve the existing NHS service to ensure all women are able to access high quality menopause care, as well as the physical, emotional and psychological signs and symptoms of the menopause. But we also talk about tips for choosing herbal remedies, examples of integrative approaches to menopausal symptoms like brain fog, low energy, cognitive issues and weight gain. We also talk about how natural approaches can blend well with hormone replacement therapy, the difference between tisanes, tinctures and capsules, as well as a whole lot more. And I highly recommend checking out Anne's brilliant book called Natural Menopause. It's full of illustrations, tips and practical advice from a trusted professional who's really looked at this in great detail from both angles of both complementary medicine and traditional conventional medicine as well. Remember, you can download the Doctor's Kitchen app for free. This will give you a great grounding in the diet that aligns very well with what we want to do to support the menopause. We're also working on an extra health goal that considers all different areas of women's health. And you can check out my newsletter, Eat, Listen, Read, where I give you a recipe to cook for that week, something to read, something to listen to, something to watch as well, as well as something to make you smile at the end of the email that a lot of people absolutely love. But for now, this is my conversation with Dr. Anne Henderson from the Integrative and Personalized Medicine Conference. I really do hope you enjoy this. And thank you so much for taking the time. I know you're going to be speaking on stage soon. Um, how's your conference been so far? I know we've literally just started, but... Yeah, it's, it's all run smoothly. The journey up was was better than I expected. Yeah. Uh, you never know what to expect in London these days. Yeah. But uh, And uh, it's a great venue. I've, I've had a quick look around just to get my bearings. And it looks like it's going to be a... Uh, a great, uh, great conference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. and it's, it's a bit novel, isn't it, that you've got so much natural light in the uh, exhibition area, which is awesome. Yeah, Beaut- yeah. I mean, it's a, it, although it's a modern building, it's uh, it's in contrast to the Houses of Parliament opposite. In fact, I was yeah. at the Palace of Westminster on Monday oh, really? with the Menopause Mandate campaign. So it's the direct opposite of this. It's very dark and lots of ancient stonework and marble. Um, so I was there with the... Uh, menopause campaign uh, led by Mariella Frostrup and Davina McCall, um, and it was great. It was it was it was a short session. It was only an hour and a half, but uh, it was very well attended. And um, there were a few uh, members of Parliament there, including Carolyn Harris, who leads the All Party Women's Health Group. So mm. it was great. It was just you know to get across the message about menopause about. Uh, all aspects, HRT shortages. So it was really good. 
Yeah, yeah. tell us a bit yeah. more about the, the menopause mandate. So it's a relatively recent campaign. And I know some of your listeners are probably going to think, oh, we're campaigned out with menopause. <laughs> you know, I, and, and I have moments myself, although I've been doing menopause for 30 years and I've seen everything. I've seen the good, the bad, the ugly, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, it's pretty ugly at the moment, I would say. But um, I, I think there's a there is a huge sort of ground level campaign vibe at the moment, which has really built up, I would say, during lockdown and as we came out of lockdown. And, you know, there are lots of different groups, um, all grass level. And what I think is fascinating is the common denominator is very few of them are actually led by doctors as such, um, uh, whether that's GPs or gynecologists like myself. Um, and I think that's a fascinating development that it's it's the you know, it's the grassroots, it's women themselves and celebrity activists who are actually leading the way now. Mm. Now that's, you know, I think that's great, but I think it is open to a backlash Mm. to some extent. And I've, it's interesting, I've seen, um, even since Monday, when we were up in in Parliament, um, just in the last two or three days, there's been, I wouldn't call it a backlash, but I think there's been some negative reporting in the the mainstream media that I've covered, yeah you know, uh, words to the effect of uh, have we reached peak menopause campaigning? And um, I even heard on the news yesterday that there is now a move to have menopause disallowed as a medical condition, which I think will will be very difficult because it flies in the face of the, you know, the workforce campaigning that that has has gone on. And I've been heavily involved in that over the last few years, particularly with the police fire and rescue services and so on. And they, the, the work they have done over the last seven years, particularly the, the police forces over the country, is astonishing. I mean, they have led the way in um, sorting out menopause environment in the workplace, uh-huh. um, you know, having a reasonable access passports to help menopausal, perimenopausal and menopausal women um, and, you know, the private sector is now following suit, but it was the public sector who led the way. And I think if the backlash affects that um, and, you know, almost tries to offset some of the gains that we've had, mm-hmm. um, both in the workplace, but also in terms of positive publicity, I think I think that will be uh, you know, a sad outcome. Yeah. But I, you know, I'm I'm pro it. I know not all doctors are, um, and I understand that. You know, everybody has to um, fight the cause in their own way. Um, but I, I think there will come a time where we need to just have a happy medium balance, perhaps, and accept that uh, you know there is a there's a limit to publicity. Otherwise, people begin to tire and you know, you, you, you lose that uh, that positive slant, I yeah, think. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. I, I, yeah. I just think, I mean, listeners of the podcast would have heard a lot about just the basic economics of improving access to menopausal care. And purely from like the sort of selfish point of view of um, reducing costs, improving overall health, reducing the risks, all the rest of it, you know, that, that ju- it just makes sense to, to, to do this. So uh, we'll talk a bit about that in a second. You, you touched on uh, uh, some of the difficulties you had in creating menopausal uh, uh, clinics yourself. What, what, what are some of the, the barriers that, that people might face at, at the moment? 
Well, I mean, menopause is a bit like a soap opera. And because I've been around for so long, I just smile benignly at the late comers, you know, the, the junior relative, I'm probably getting killed for this, but the relatively junior doctors. Uh, so, I mean, I uh, did, um, after I qualified uh, back in the glory days where everybody had the luxury of doing post-grad and research as part of your registrar training, which, and I have to say, I think the loss of that is is such a detriment to medicine. I mean, I had three and a half years doing post-grad research um, into menopause, PMS, and postnatal depression. And I the, the amount that I learned, the depth of training I had in that time, you can't replicate by doing 20 years of clinics, you know, if you're doing full-on research, uh, it is a luxury, I, I, I grant that, but it's um, it just gives you the most amazing grounding to start the rest of your career. And you know that you're moving forward on a solid scientific basis, and then you gather your clinical skills. So you end up with this combination of absolute confidence in in what you're doing and obviously you know the science changes as the decades go by sometimes positively sometimes not but I, I think that the loss of the ability to do that for the generation of doctors coming through is 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 a very sad one um, I was fortunate to work with uh, Professor John Studd who uh, we used to call him the godfather of menopause, and that was probably quite, uh, there were maf- mafia-like tendencies, I would say. <laughs> yeah. Sadly, he passed away last year, um, and uh, he was working right till literally, I think, months before he died almost. Um, and we're having a, a, a get-together at the Royal Society of Medicine in his honour in a couple of weeks. So I think that will be there'll be several generations of uh, of doctors who come along which yeah. I think will be a great evening um but you know the training that we got was um you know unsurpassed i mean i mean we did clinics every week so we were getting the clinical training but we were all churning out papers we were doing presentations in the uk and abroad and um always looking for the next uh, the next new step and you know the the training that i got was was really focusing on postnatal depression. But of course, we ran huge menopause clinics and I was able to see how PND segued into PMS and then often into perimenopausal PMS and then menopausal depression and psychological problems. Mm-hmm. And that was a big, uh, that, that was one of the big aspects of our uh, research. Um, you know, we, we had five, six, sometimes 10 projects going on at the, the same time, and we all co-collaborated. So it was a fantastic time. Um, so I feel, you know, that was back in the 90s, and we've seen everything. Um, you know, shortly after I came out of research, uh, we had the somewhat disastrous Women's Health Initiative papers from America, and uh, that was the early 2000s. And then we had the, you know, the the drama, uh, the breast cancer drama, um, and there've been ups and downs over the decades since then. Um, and, you know, I think I'm, I'm, I'm fortunate that I can look back fondly, uh, with slightly rose tinted glasses, if you like, but, uh, you know, I, th- I think we're in a great position now. Um, and, you know, p- part of me is sad that, that, uh, Prof Stud passed away as we we're coming to this sort of peak, peak interest um, because he would have, I'm sure he would have been thrilled for the for the specialty. Mm-hmm. Um, he fought long and hard to get um, frontline publicity, frontline headlines, yeah. you know, to 
get the education and training out there. Yeah. I mean, you know, it was his life's work. And um, I think it's a testament to him now that we are where we are. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. you mentioned a, a couple of barriers there, just to clarify. So one of the main barriers, I think, is that lack of the opportunity of education for professionals coming through. And then there's the awareness piece as well that I think is uh, getting better, certainly with the public work that you're doing. What about the other areas where there is a need to expand the services within the NHS? You've worked in the NHS for many years, you work privately now. What things can you do in your practice that you wish other practitioners could do within the NHS today? What, what are those barriers? Well, we're, I mean, going back to the the issues that you, you touched on, there there is definitely a lack of awareness, but I I see that as being a fundamentally a medical issue. And we go back to the comments that I made earlier that the campaign and the the advances we've made recently, I think, are being driven by lay people, not by medics. And I that concerns me. I mean, as a as a senior doctor, um, I, I'm thinking you know, where is my college? What has the Royal College, the RCOG, been doing? I know they've got many things on their plate, but has menopause been a focus? What about the Royal College of General Practitioners, the RCGPs? Where has their focus been? Um, the GMC, you know, they're our overarching regulatory body, the Department of Health. You know, there's a huge, huge number of national institutions that could have been working together more effectively. And I think we've got to where we've got to because there's been a complete lack of compulsory training for all doctors. Mm -hmm. When I trained, uh, as I've already outlined, I had the you know the the great uh, pleasure and um, privilege to work in postmenopausal research. But the average doctor coming through even now has negligible menopause training. It's only very recently that I understand the RCGP has actually introduced a menopause module. Mm -hmm. So you could go through six years of medical training and postgrad training and be presented with a menopause patient in general practice or in a gynecology clinic, and that could be the first menopause patient you've ever met. That is unacceptable. And it, I don't think it should ever have been allowed to happen, uh, given that you know, if women live long enough, they will all go through perimenopause and menopause. That's 50% of the population, 13 and a half million women estimated, probably more. It's astonishing that doctors don't have compulsory training. And that has led us to where we are now. We've now got a situation where the demand is swamping. I mean, swamping is probably even an underestimate. It's completely overwhelming the supply. Um, and, you know, medics, the institutions that I've talked about should have seen that coming, made plans because we could have foreseen the demand would increase. And we have this constant um, disconnect between the demand, the expertise needed to supply that demand. And that's that's where we are now. Mm. We've got, I think, less than 200 BMS, that's British Menopause Society accredited specialists like myself mm. in the country. Mm. So you can do the maths. <laughs> Not everyone has a clinic. Mm. Um, and I think um, we've got around 140. Uh, that, that's a that's a, a ballpark figure, so I may not be completely accurate, but 140 menopause clinics in the whole UK trying to meet the needs of mi literally millions of women. So, and, and I, I think about medicine and I think I can't 
think of any other specialty within medicine that has that huge uh, imbalance. Mm. Uh, and you, you have to question how on earth did we get to this state and why was it not dealt with earlier? Mm. It seems like everybody's firefighting now. You know, we're introducing menopause modules because we've had to, um, instead of because it's the right thing to do, and it's it's all being done on the back foot. And, and I mean, you know yourself, it will take, you can't train a doctor overnight. It uh, doesn't matter whether it's menopause or not. The next generation of doctors a decade away by the time they've done their house job, their medical training, their clinical training, their house jobs. So um, I, I, it, that's that's where we've got to. Um, and I, you know, as, as you pointed out, I ran a, an NHS menopause clinic for many, many years, 20, 20, 25 years. And we had all those problems. We were fighting for um, funding. We were fighting to even get a room sometimes to run a clinic. It was it was very basic, despite the fact that, you know, our reviews were overwhelmingly positive and we, we ran a great service on a very basically a shoestring budget. So it's, it, it, it you know, I'm probably painting a very negative picture, but I think, uh, you know, you want your listeners to know the reality absolutely. and how did we get to this yeah, place? Absolutely. Because people will say, well, why is it such a mess? You know, um, and that's that's the bottom line. I think several of the uh, institutions dropped the ball, mm. bad, bad, you know, big time. Um, mm. And I think this could all have been avoided. Absolutely, yeah. And yeah. It's, I think it's a very accurate picture. And it, and a. Uh, a headline that I've heard many, many times actually from different practitioners about the struggles to get funding, the struggles to get a room, the very basic accommodation for what is going to affect 50% of women, uh, um, uh, so 50% of the population. You've also talked about mandatory menopause training, not just for, for medics, but actually in the wider ecosystem. You mentioned in public sector, the private sector are taking this a lot more seriously now as they should be. What about schools and other workplaces? What, what are your thoughts on, on, on that? Again, huge advances in recent years. And I'm delighted that one of my close colleagues, Diane Danzebrink, who's a very well-renowned menopause campaigner, she's a, I'm sure she wouldn't mind me calling her a force of nature. She's, she's brilliant. Um, so Diane, as a, uh, uh, been a, a big campaign over the last few years, Make Menopause Matter, and she's got hundreds of thousands of signatories to her campaign. And part of that campaign was to get menopause education uh, added on as a compulsory module on the PHSE scheme at schools. And I believe that happened last year. So that, again, is another win which has been achieved by a layperson. Uh, you know, Diane is a very well-renowned menopause coach and campaigner, but nonetheless, she's, she's not medically qualified. And again, it's been her work and her hard efforts. Yeah. The, the module's great, and I actually have evidence that it's in place, and it's, uh, I'm sure it will be a great add-on to the, you know, the general um, health and sex education program. Absolutely. So girls and boys coming through now will have had a, a, at least a decent basic grounding in menopause. Yeah, so that's great. That's the grassroots up. You know, we've got um, employers on board. We've got the education system on board. We certainly got the public on board. I mean, the demand is overwhelming. We just need to make sure that healthcare practitioners, doctors, GPs, gynecologists, nurses, and so on can can 
provide a service that meets the demand. Really. Yeah, we, we've thought of, we've talked about this multi-pronged approach when it comes to improving one's health in various different domains, and I think a cultural change in the way someone appreciates what. Uh, what happens during menopause, I think is a very, very important piece. You know, we're, we're in a room here with three ah. young men. I think, you know, it's really important to, to educate everyone. And I think that's actually how you instigate change as well. You, you also talked about in a recent social media post about the studies that identified a correlation between menopause, symptoms and performance at work. How, how, what are the key things that you think employees should be thinking about when supporting menopause at work? Well, the first thing is awareness. Mm. Uh, and bearing in mind, women can become perimenopausal from early 40s onwards, certainly from 45 onwards. And you think about the millions of women who are in the workforce in, in that age group and beyond 50, I think there's an estimated three and a half to four million. So we're talking big numbers again. Awareness is key. Uh, the, the sad thing about this group of women is that if you look at the uh, studies, the TUC studies, occupational health studies, they're not a pretty picture. And they show that women who are very diligent, some of whom have really high-powered, important jobs, have got unblemished careers, great annual appraisals, performing to a very high level uh, as judged by their employers and their peers, suddenly... Uh, crash and burn. And, and that sounds a very dramatic statement, but I think for many women, th that's how they feel. So they find themselves uh, struggling on all levels. They find themselves struggling physically because of the poor sleep, the disrupted sleep, the loss of non-REM or deep sleep, uh, plus vasomotor symptoms, which can be very intrusive. Uh, then the psychological aspects, particularly the brain fog, cognitive change. So they are genuinely struggling to do a job that they've done for years and perform very well at. So there's a sense of embarrassment and shame. They're worried. Uh, they may take early redundancy. They may go on extended sick leave to try and cover up. And they then, the saddest thing is they seek out help from their GP and they're often misdiagnosed as being depressed. Oh, you're not menopausal, you've got anxiety, you've got depression um, because your blood levels are normal and you're only 45, you can't possibly be menopausal. That's a mantra I've heard time and again. Now, if you think that's how the woman is feeling and that's how she's been treated by her healthcare practitioners, the employer is in a difficult place because they're, they're standing there thinking, well, this woman's underperforming. She, you know, she's told Oki Health that she's gone on to antidepressants, what's going on, you know. Uh, whereas the bigger picture is, it's clearly menopause, and the employer can then step in if they have that knowledge and training, and if they have the resources and uh, guidelines in place, and they could transform her life. Uh, you know, reasonable adjustment passports that I touched on that the police introduced years ago, flexi time, working from home wherever possible, even simple adjustments like having thermostats, um, water coolers, um, fans. Uh, I mean, these sound really facile things, but they make a huge difference. And, you know, education in the workforce, including men, um, you know, it's not, it's not a female thing because men are in the workforce and uh, this, this woman might have a male line manager or male colleagues in the office. You can imagine what it's like in the police and the fire service. God, um, you know, having a hot flush is not fun. Um, and actually, I, I always remember a line from a, um, a frontline um, fire and rescue woman who was menopausal. Um, 
She said, imagine, imagine being in a suit, a fire protective suit with full gear on, stuff on your back, gloves, helmet, visor, and then you have a hot flush on top of that. Guess what? The visor steams up. So you're in a building trying to save people and you can't even see what you're doing. So, um, and and she said this in front of a a seminar and and of course they're now developing different visors, different kit, silk and cotton um, undergarments, which are wicking and rather than the horrible polyester. So, you know, that's a bit of a a side uh, story, but that's, uh, you know, that's what the reality is. I'm really glad you mentioned that because I think it might seem facile to a lot of people Mm -hmm. who haven't experienced that, but that really does paint a picture of just how important it is because it obstructs your ability to perform your job and being a firefighter, pretty important. Safety is imperative. And she could have said, right, I'm sorry, I'm taking the path of least resistance. Mm. I've done my 25, 30 years. I'm going to go and sit in an office and do an office job. But actually, she loved being, uh, she was very fit, as you can imagine. I mean, you you know, but she loved it. And, you know, she said being a female on the front line, when you take your visor off, people don't expect to see a woman. And, you know, if there's a family or children involved, it sometimes is is the deal breaker and it calms everybody down. Mm. So, you know, I think employers have a huge role to play. I would say it's as essential as the medical support. Um, It's difficult to say what's the chicken and which is the egg, but women will get nowhere, even if they have great medical care, if they don't have support in the workforce. But again, if they don't have the medical support, it's great having this really understanding boss and colleagues who can laugh if you have a hot flush, that's all well and good. But if you can't get the medical help you need, it's uh, it's not going to work. And, and so I think education on both fronts is, is essential. On the subject of medical treatment, um, I'm really, I really want to get into the, to the nitty gritty of the full spectrum of treatments that you've talked about in your book as well. Uh, the utility of complementary therapies such as herbal medicines, as well as all the other aspects of lifestyle. Let's talk about herbal medicine and the role of complementary therapies, particularly herbal medicine, which I think, again, on top of the lack of menopausal education and the treatments that we have at our disposal in general practice and in secondary care, this is completely, you know, far removed from from education as it stands today. So, t- tell us about the importance of, of home medicine and how we can utilize it. Well, again, it's uh, if you don't know about it, you should. A bit like <laughs> menopause. Um, I, I mean, I have worked very closely with uh, the herbalist community, particularly a, a very experienced herbalist who. Uh, works close to me in Kent and collaborated on my natural menopause book. And I, I believe that Dorling Kindersley approached me specifically to write this more holistic guide because it, it's been something that I have focused on for for decades. It uh, it's all quite trendy now, I think, to you know to be looking more holistically at menopause care. But it's something I've done for for, for decades, um, and I you know fortunately I've built up very close relationships and I've, I've learned a lot, you know, and sadly many doctors, GPs and um, consultants know nothing about herbal medicine. I'll never forget one of the first um, 
educational seminars I did with the herbalist I work with, Anita Ralph, who is, uh, I'll give her a name check, check out her website, The Medicine Tree, absolutely fantastic. Uh, and she's written a book as well called uh, Herbal Pioneers. So if you if you want to look into it in more depth, uh, I'll, that's a shout out to Anita. Um, but I'll never forget one of the first educational seminars we did. And uh, it was uh, quite a large group of GPs who were expecting me to come along and tell them all about menopause. And I pitched up and I had Anita with me and they weren't quite expecting. I thought, who's this? Is this your PA? And um, so we, we were lecturing for about an hour. And after about 40 minutes, 35, 40 minutes, I stood down. And I said, now I'm going to hand over to my um, herbalist colleague, Anita Ralph. And you could have heard a pin drop. Um, it was very, uh, very amusing. And uh, the, the front row were just aghast. You know, who is this consultant? And who is this woman she's brought with her? Um, and it was very amusing, but we had deadpan expressions. And at the end, of course, we took questions. And I think they were just sitting there completely. And they were actually terrified to ask her a question because they were completely out of their depth, really out of their comfort zone. So I was getting fired with questions uh, like a machine gun and Anita was sitting there. And I said, well, let's just throw some questions at Anita. It was and, and you know, as, as the meeting went on, they, they warmed. To, she's brilliant, very good presenter. And, um, you know, the, there were quite a few raised eyebrows, but I thought, you know, look into it. You know, don't don't be ignorant. It may not be something that you you are particularly fascinated by, but look into it. Yeah. Um, How did you get into it? Because you, you well, said you, you've been yeah, interested for decades. I, um, I, I think it probably, it's been so long ago, um, but I think it was probably one of my patients who um, had, uh, um, had come to see me for HRT and had some residual symptoms, most likely vasomotor symptoms of flushes and sweats. And I think this is where herbal medicine can blend beautifully with, with HRT. Um, I think it's a complete mis, uh, misrepresentation that you can't have both herbs and hormones together. And I have many women in my own practice who do both very well. And, you know, this particular patient had residual vasomotor symptoms, despite being on a pretty decent regime. Um, and we decided we would look a bit more broadly, added in some sage and lemon balm within a few weeks, her, her vasomotor symptoms had improved dramatically, her sleep had improved. And I took the view that that was a much better outcome rather than pumping up the estrogen again and again. I mean, nowadays I do get worried that we're, and I see it in my own clinic too, women are chasing this sometimes unachievable 100% symptom control with ever higher and higher doses of estrogen. Now, for some women, that is indicated, but I think we've got to be very wary that we don't overstep and go into inappropriate territory with HRT. Um, and that's where herbs blend beautifully. If you select the herbs for the symptoms that you, you, you're worried about, and in, in, the, in the tables in my book, it was made very user-friendly. So you look at the symptoms, you look at the herbs that have particular properties that have been um, scientifically shown to help, you can then have a tincture that's blended for yeah. you. And, and I just started to explore after seeing this, um, you know, got involved with Anita and we cross-refer. Um, at one point we used to run a joint clinic, but actually it was, it's easier. We both run our own practices and we just cross-refer and it mm -hmm. works, it works very well. Um, so it's been, it's been a great collaboration. It's benefited myself 
And I think Anita's learned, she's much more knowledgeable about HRT and it certainly benefited patients. And going back to that uh, infamous meeting, we got, uh, again, it's one of those things that sticks in your mind. Uh, when we got the reviews in afterwards, um, there was an anonymous one uh, that said, great presentations, uh, quote, even the white witch was was quite impressive. <laughs> I know. And, I mean, literally, and I, I, I had to show it to Anita and we just collapsed. And I, I had an idea which GP it was, but I, no names mentioned. But I thought, there you go, you're a wow. white witch. Wow. And so when we lectured after that, you know, I'd say, and I brought my white witch along with me, you know, and like, why are you calling her that? And I said, well, it was, it was a name coined by one of my GP colleagues. So... Yeah, so you got to take the rough with the smooth, and uh, you know. But I'm I've got broad shoulders, and you know, <laughs> yeah. I, I think if you know that something works, mm -hmm. and you've seen it in clinical practice, mm -hmm. and you've seen it benefit your patients, then I'm you know I'm happy for people to you know throw uh, throw arrows at me. It doesn't you know I, I I'm confident that it works, and if it's done properly, it's very safe, and that's that's what we want. Yeah, yeah. well, I'm glad you can laugh about that incident. Yeah. That it's uh that's, that's definitely telling. What you I I can almost guarantee you're not going to get any of that kind of no, response today <laughs> at the Integrative and Personalized Medicine Conference. But um I I, I want to isn't it incredible that for, in a lot of instances I've come across people who either from personal experience family experience or their patients coming up to them and telling them about their experiences have changed their the course of their clinical career. I know for me, it was my own personal medical issues that led me to dive into nutrition and lifestyle in a lot more detail. Uh, but patient, if you just listen to patients and what they are telling you, there's so much to be, to be learned from them. Diving into a bit more about herbalism, and I'm definitely going to point people towards Anita Ralph. That, that sounds fascinating. And your book, obviously. So vasomotor symptoms, you talk about sage and was it? Uh, yes, Le lemon balm, mm. it, which has um, calming properties mm. as, as well. Uh, sage is, is known to have vasoregulatory properties amongst others. Mm. Um, and... Uh, well, it, it, there are a variety of different options. Uh, there are over-the-counter uh, preparations, but I, I think as with all types of uh, complementary medicine, you need to know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. I'm not a fan of being a shelf shopper and just yeah. picking something because you've read about it in the Sunday Times or the Daily Mail or online or social media. You know, it's got to be something that's based in in good good science. Yeah. So uh, there are capsules primarily and as with all complementary medicines there's a huge range of qualities i would say if somebody's interested please do your background work and wherever possible buy herbs that are covered under the umbrella of the mhra which is the medicines health regulatory authority now that's a bit of a long uh, a long mouthful so basically this is the government body who regulates prescribe drugs, prescription-only medicines, and there are certain groups of herbs made by uh, renowned companies such as Avogel, which is a very well-known Swiss company with whom I collaborate. So their products uh, reach a much higher standard than many other products, and they are fully regulated. Now, with a herb such as sage, which I think is probably the commonest prescribed or recommended herb for menopause, you have to be very clear that it is THF certified, that's thujone free. 
Um, thujones are some uh, rather detrimental additives that can be found in association with sage that can impact on things like liver metabolism. So that's a very good example uh, that all herbs may not be completely safe all the time. You need to know what you're taking, why you're taking, and take the best quality product available. Um, but that being said, you know, there's a lot of information out there now. Um, and, and going back to the tables in my book, they were designed to make it easy for the layperson to understand and perhaps take baby steps into to looking at what might work for them. I would say if you're if you're uncertain, start with a tisane, which is a, a very mild, diluted blend of herbs. So if we think of chamomile tea or mint tea, they are tisanes, they are herbal tisanes. Um, and that is uh, probably the, the weakest form of, of herbal therapy. You can imagine drinking a, a glass of tea with fresh mint in it or uh, chamomile leaves. You will still get some of the properties. For example, chamomile and valerian have... Uh, soporific qualities, very calming qualities. So that would be your baby introduction, your baby step introduction. If you wanted to take it to the next level, you're then looking at much stronger supplements, either in tablet or powder form. Or if you went to see a fully qualified herbalist uh, like Anita, uh, you would be prescribed a very personal tincture, um, which she has blended herself using organically grown freeze-dried herbs uh, that are, her, her shop's like a, an emporium. It's stacked everywhere, the most amazing smell. And there are these really potent herbs lining the walls. It's like stepping back into Charles Dickens. Oh, uh, wow. So, but that's the, that's the other end of the spectrum. And you would need uh, a very experienced professional to prescribe those for you. Um, so a tincture is a, 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 I'll be honest, they're absolutely foul tasting, incredibly bitter. Yeah. Um, but you have to get over that and just, you know, m- you know, press on through. So they're diluted and you take them with a, a drink every day to get the full properties. And these tinctures are very careful blends of different herbs that work synergistically that are then adjusted through your journey of treatment. So there's a huge range. There's an entry level Um, uh, You can buy off the shelf as long as you do your research and you buy safely. Uh, And there is a list on the internet of the MHRA uh, recommended herbs, so you can uh, get access to that. But you could go to the other end of the spectrum and then seek professional advice from a herbalist. And the qualified herbalists are usually regulated by the NIMH, which is the National Institute of Medical Herbalists. Mm. So they're uh, all highly qualified. They've got more degrees than I do. Many of them have BSCs, MSCs, goodness knows, everything. Um, So if you go there, you're in safe hands. Absolutely. I I think Um, you're, you're painting a wonderful framework for how people should approach this. So I think in the first instance... If you have symptoms, you've done some research, go and see your GP, uh, have a full consultation, move on to the next steps. Once you have a diagnosis, you know, think about what ways in which, uh, w- which medical treatments you'd, you'd want to entertain in the, in the first instance, if it's necessary at that point. And then doing your research, making sure you're looking at uh, medication, uh, sorry, uh, supplements or teas that are at the lower end of the uh, the um, uh, the, the, the scale when it comes to the potency and then moving up to the another, le- another level where you actually see a registered herbalist if you want something a little bit stronger 
that can potentially complement all the other treatments that you have. Absolutely. And I think the point that I would like to get across is it's all about informed consent and decision making. Now, in my practice, it's probably slightly skewed in that most women coming to speak to me will make the decision or may have already made the decision that they want to start HRT. And obviously they would be getting advice from me on whether that's the right choice and if so, what the what the regime should be. Um, but there are women who just come for a general discussion. They want to spend up to an hour fact-finding, you know, having that time, that ring-fence time to um, ask about current guidelines, what, what are the pros, what are the cons, what, what's available, what's on the table. And some of those women will go away for a few years and they may look at their uh, holistically at health, nutrition, fitness, mental well-being, look at complementary therapies, and that may suit them very well. They may then come back in a few years when perhaps the symptoms are uh, deteriorating or they have other health concerns. But, but, the, but the baseline is always having that discussion about what's available and then the patient makes the choice, the woman. I mean, she's not always a patient, but the, the woman makes the choice. It's not for a doctor to say, you must do this, um, except in very rare circumstances. Um, so we, we are there to provide the information and they then make the choice. And this is what goes back to my earlier point. We will get nowhere unless GPs, practice nurses, and most general gynecologists have that knowledge and the confidence. You know, you have to have the confidence to know that what you're telling the patient is accurate and honest. Um, and that's that's where we've got to focus on because unless women can gather that information together, I, I, how can they possibly decide, uh, well, I need HRT or I need herbs or I need both or I need to do this or, you know, um, they're, they're, they're sort of running around in the dark. Yeah, yeah. So, and, and I think that's the basis that I always set off on. And I would never at all be offended if a patient after chatting to me for, you know, a fairly lengthy time decides, you know what, this is fascinating, but it's not for me at the moment. I know some colleagues are, and they feel, oh, I haven't done my job because she doesn't want estrogen or testosterone. But I would say, no, I mean, if if I've given you a balanced view and you've decided that you don't want HRT, then I've, I've certainly done my job. Um, and that's, that's what specialists like myself, I think, are, are here for. Absolutely. Uh, I want to talk a bit more about the nutrition element of it as well. But just to touch on uh, herbalism, this is very new to me as well. I think I definitely need to educate myself. We've had a few herbalists on the podcast before talking about herbs in specific instances. Even um, uh, Alex Laird, who has an NHS clinic working alongside a dermatologist where she prescribes herbs as well, which I think is fascinating in East London. Um, the different symptoms that uh, women will experience with menopause at vast. So we talked about vasomotor, you mentioned sleep issues. What are the other instances where you find that specific herbs, whether they be tisanes, whether they be supplements of the, the higher level of potency, have, have a role? Well, if you, if, you just, if you divide menopausal symptoms into three categories, you've got the physical cluster, you've got the emotional cluster and the psychological cluster. Um, unfortunately, some women have um, elements in all three, but some uh, are just in one group. So the physical ones would be the ones we've touched on, vasomotor symptoms, musculoskeletal symptoms, headaches, tiredness, disrupted sleep, bladder symptoms, 
The emotional ones are the sometimes unrecognized ones, um, anxiety, which you know can become overwhelming, low mood, labile mood, sometimes clinical depression, but not always, hence the misdiagnosis. Um, and uh, this wonderful syndrome that I just describe as the, the red fog or the black mist. And it, it sometimes, you know, a little description like that says it all. We don't need fancy, you know, diagnoses. You know, if somebody says, oh, the red mist came down today, you know exactly what they mean. Um, and that it seems to be something very peculiar to um, perimenopause and menopause, even in women who have the calmest, most placid personalities. So, and then we've got the um, psychological ones, which um, are, are really problematic. And that includes the brain fog, cognition, loss of the ability to multitask, short-term memory, focus, concentration, and then this wonderful um, thing, which is actually correctly described as a loss of nouns. So loss of nouns is what women try to describe when they're talking about it, but they don't, that's the technical term. It is literally loss of nouns in speech. So it's very different to a dementia speech pattern where you lose verbs, adverbs, uh, adjectives. In menopause, it's the nouns. So women will be trying to you know, speak, they might forget uh, the description of something, uh, the name. I mean, a classical example is I was doing a a video consultation the other week and someone was sitting in her kitchen with a huge stainless steel fridge freezer behind her. It was massive. So it was like a backdrop. Um, And we got onto her symptom profile and she said, um, yes, she said, now this is a case in point. And she pointed behind her, she said, I know what this is, but I can't tell you what the word is. So she started saying it's huge, it's eight foot tall, it's got ice in it, it's stainless steel, it's got handles, we keep food in it. Couldn't get the word. And then we carried on. I said, well, let's move on. And then five minutes later, she said, it's a fridge. And it was literally, and we, we'd moved way on. We were talking about something else. And she said, it's a fridge, you know. And, and it was very funny. And of course, I knew exactly what, you know, somebody might have thought she was quite mad. But I said, okay, it's a fridge. And she said, this is what happens all the time. So this is the, the classical loss of nouns. So you've got those clusters of symptoms. And I think the first thing to do when you're personalizing your menopause journey is work out your, I would say, work out your five key symptoms. I mean, you may have many more, but there's always three, four or five, which are the really important ones, which are affecting personal and work life. And then focus on a program to deal with these. And that's where the the, the pillars of nutrition, fitness, mental well-being, complementary medicine and HRT come in. And then you start to uh, build a program to to try and tackle those particular symptoms. And if you were looking at herbs, then you would drill down and think, well, we need to look at a particular cocktail that will address those symptoms. Mm. You know, if somebody didn't have vasomotor symptoms, we might not look at sage. We might look at, say, Siberian ginseng or ginkgo biloba if there's a libido issue. Mm. You know, there, there's a huge range. Agnes Castus, of course, St. John's Wort is, um, St. John's Wort rather, is renowned for the mood-boosting properties. Agnes Castus or Ladies Mantle, actually, that are randomized controlled trials looking at the role in premenstrual exacerbation. Um, So it works better than the pill. It works better than placebo. Mm -hmm. So you need to know what you're trying to deal with rather than have a scattergun approach. Because if if somebody is 
down and has the red mist, sage is probably not going to be an appropriate choice. Mm. Um, you would look at um, other other um, neurotropic type yeah. Um, yeah. responses. Yeah, that's fascinating. So I think uh, separating out the different uh, constellation and clusters of symptoms like you've done, emotional, physical, et cetera, and then looking at uh, different types of uh, supplements that could help with those. Are there particular categories of supplements or herbs that would apply to those individual areas or is it very personalized there are and you know there are herbs that generally have um properties that help regulate vasomotor issues that are there are herbs and supplements that might have joint properties mm. um i mean chondroitin and glucosamine are mm. obviously the supplements that come to mind mm. and again they they don't work for everybody but but they certainly can be life-changing for some for some women um you know there's a huge there's such a huge range and some herbs cross the boundary so you might have a herb that has a calming property uh, but also lifts mood as well mm. so it's um you know, it, it, there's just a huge range out there, and it, it's it's for a woman to decide individually if that's the route she wants to go down, or if she wants to go down the conventional route and perhaps add some herbs in as well if there are gaps in her in her treatment portfolio. One of the commonest questions that we get from our newsletter community, and we get questions every single week as well as across social media and uh, in relationship to the podcast, is about brain fog and energy, particularly now. A lot of people have heard various things about supplements and it's all sort of like scattered, uh, you know, ashwagandha, lion's mane, different types of mushroom teas, uh, ginseng, like you said, green tea. What are the the uh, the supplements or the tinctures that you think have the most robust evidence in that field when it comes to improving well, ones? I mean, you mentioned some of them. I mean, ashwagandha mm. is is often a, a key part of a tincture for someone with cognition issues. Um, and you must also take into account the fact that uh, part of the reason that women uh, may have cognition issues is a sleep deficit as well. So you've got to tackle the direct impact of estrogen on the on the eastern receptors in the in the key functioning parts of the brain but also the element of sleep deprivation so if someone's not sleeping they may well have cognitive deficit because of that mm -hmm. uh, you know sleep deficit is uh, as as has been said it's a form of torture so um you know you have to deal with that so that's when uh, valerian chamomile um the calming herbs would come in. So you might take that at bedtime. In the morning, you might have um, a tincture with uh, ashwagandha and other other relevant herbs too to to fit that uh, fit that mold. Again, going back to the the overall group of symptoms um, with with cognition as well. I'm always on looking. At, you know, I think women have got to look at their nutrition, look at nutrients as well. Mm -hmm commonly find that women in this group are a borderline or frankly deficient with vitamin D and folate and sometimes B12, surprisingly, um, you know, um, particularly in the vegetarian vegan community, even though they're taking supplements. So in, you know, it complements the, the overall picture if you look at nutrition and Obviously, the ideal is that you get everything from food. I mean, that that's obviously the ideal goal, but that's sometimes not possible. And I'm constantly astonished if we ever measure nutrient levels in the blood, how many women are borderline for these key ones, ferritin, folate, B12, um, 
and uh, vitamin D, and they're all key. You know, they all have a, a play an intrinsic role in the neural system, mood, mental health, well-being. We know that borderline vitamin D or low vitamin D levels are probably a major cause of subclinical depression. Mm. Um, one could argue that everybody should be on several thousand units of vitamin D before they even think about an SSRI. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, no, I, yeah. I would agree with that. And it, it doesn't shock me anymore when I look at a blood panel, I see vitamin mm. D crashingly low, mm. B12. Um, to, to, I know we're running out of time here. There's so much stuff I want to ask you about. Um, uh, do you have thoughts on uh, two things? Omega-3 supplementation, the long chain EPA and DHA, and protein supplementation. I get asked a lot of questions about whether women uh, during the, the menopause, perimenopause and menopausal stages should be supplementing with things like a protein-rich uh, powder, a collagen, that kind of stuff. What, what, what are your thoughts on those two? Well, the... Uh, omegas definitely. I mean, mm. they're they're great for so many parts of the body, the skin, uh, the breast tissue, for example, can be great for helping um, nostalgia, breast pain, and tenderness, joints. You know, uh, absolutely. So they're kind of multitaskers, and of course, there's cardiovascular health as well. Protein is is uh, fascinating. Um, one of the, I would say, one of the commonest problems that uh, perimenopausal and menopausal women. Uh, experience is is weight gain. Um, it's 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 not a menopausal symptom as such, but it's a very common complaint, and it happens even in women who um, have a great nutritional input. They're fit, they're active, they're ticking all the boxes. They don't smoke, they don't drink to excess. Many don't drink at all because it produces vasomotor symptoms, um, but they're still struggling. And the key is that. They're fighting a battle against. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Losing muscle, muscle tone and muscle percentage. And if you're sedentary, it's a disaster zone. I mean, you're losing as much as 4 to 5% of muscle mass a year from perimenopause onwards. So you could hit menopause and you could have lost 15% of your overall muscle mass. So there is no way you will um, be fit and active um, and maintain your weight because you're essentially replacing muscle with fat, which is disastrous for your basal metabolic rate. Um, and that's where I think a, a diet that is is focused on proteins and ensuring that you maintain your protein intake either just through healthy eating or with supplements is absolutely vital. 
because you, many women I see end up on these. So their focus is trying to maintain their weight, but th- because they don't know why they've put on weight, they just think I need to eat less. Mm-hmm. And of course they calorie restrict um, and often the things they restrict are the things you'd be eating. So they calorie restrict and they're not getting in enough protein for daily maintenance, let alone trying to build back the muscle they've lost. So this is, a, I think, where that understanding comes in. Um, and many women think, well, if you want me to eat protein, that's high fat. That's I'm having Big Macs, you know, and of course it's not. And steaks, of course it's not. Because we all know that you can have really healthy protein intake that's you know, that, that doesn't have other consequences. And I think this is such a such an important thing to get across to women that middle-aged weight gain, middle-aged spread, whatever you want to call it, is a consequence by and large of declining BMR. And that's a consequence of loss of muscle tone and mass. And if you want to get to the core of the problem, that's what you need to address. Now, HRT works brilliantly, particularly if you get the right balance of estrogen and testosterone Estrogen does help maintain muscle tone in, in contrast to the view is it has to be testosterone. It absolutely does not. But there's no doubt that a, a properly judged, a low but adequate dose of testosterone in someone who is ticking all the other boxes, who also eats well and is doing strength training will work wonders. And I've, I've seen patients transform their, you know, their body percentages, their physique, their, you know, just the whole lives really, just by adjusting, um, recognizing what the problem is and adjusting what they eat. And whether that's with intermittent fasting or time-restricted eating or, you know, what works for them. But um, I'm very much of the view that, you know, if you have a diet that's high in protein, adequate fats, low in carbs, and you follow a TRE or a, you know, a sensible, flexible eating pattern, it will work. Yeah, Yeah, fantastic. And we have to stop there. I'm I, I'm remiss because I want to ask you so many more questions. I've got so many more that I've just conjured up in my head as we've been talking about. Thank you so much. You're a fantastic advocate. We could always come back everything. for round two. <laughs> I would love to do that. I would love to do that. And we could talk a bit more about uh, the topics in your book as well. But for now, I, I hope you have a great time on stage and I'm sure I'll see you at the uh, around the conference during the next couple That's great. Thank you very well. much for asking me. It's very enjoyable. Brilliant, great. brilliant. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Dr. Anne. Remember, you can find her fantastic book called Natural Menopause with all those incredible practical tips and advice about how you can use herbal remedy alongside all the other treatments available to women. And I highly recommend you check out my newsletter as well. Eat, listen, read. You can sign up for free at thedoctorskitchen.com. I will see you here next time.